Well, allow me to just add my own welcome uh, to everyone here tonight. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming out again at the end of the Lord's Day. What a, what a privilege it is for us to gather again. Uh, won't you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6? Uh, this evening we'll be working through John chapter 6 from verses 1 to 15, uh, but really we'll be darting around the whole chapter a little bit, but our, our time will primarily be spent in verses 1 to 15. Let's read together. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Then they were, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Just so far in the reading of God's word, let's uh, open our time in prayer. O oh God, this evening we commit ourselves to you. Would you please come and speak to us now, Lord? We want to listen. Would you speak into our hearts, Lord, and would you find fertile soil? Would you plant your seeds of the gospel deep within each of us that we might be joyful in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we too may have life in his name? Would you see fit to draw some to yourself even this evening, Lord, for you are good and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think of God will shape our desires, our emotions, our lifestyles, our beliefs, and even our expectations of God himself. The challenging part of the world which we live in is that each of us are encouraged to have, believe, and even live out our own truth. You're encouraged to believe what you want, say what you want, think what you want, and to not let anyone get in the way of any of that, not even to persuade you, unless, of course, you want that too. And Carl Truman says that this type of individualistic Christianity can be best summarized as the rise and triumph of the modern self. A type of religion where everyone lives out their own version of following God, completely unconcerned with what God has said about himself. 
William Booth uh, put it really well as well. The chief danger which confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. In other words, the danger of our time is a type of Christianity which is based on what we want and not what God has said, even a type of Christ we would prefer instead of the Christ who really came. And let's not be too quick to judge the world out there. This is a problem in our own churches. Many professing Christians today will cringe at biblical ideas, ideas like accountability and transparency, true discipleship, someone being allowed to challenge us, someone being allowed to correct us, someone being invited into the nitty-gritty parts of our life to shine the light of God's Word. We cringe because if we're honest, often what comes to mind when we think of God is not necessarily shaped by God Himself, but rather what we want God to be like. And when we enter that space of thinking, one of the first things that happens is we find ourselves dreadfully underwhelmed, unhappy, and even sorely disappointed in God Himself. We're confronted by a God who loves us in His way and who has His plans for our lives, as opposed to the God who we want, who loves us in our way, and we would even dare to say, in the ways we tell Him. And this leaves a decision for each of us to make. So then this evening, and I promise this will make sense a little bit later, please keep this question in the back of your minds. Do I want food, freedom, or Christ? And this leads us to uh, our first point, uh, which is going to be summarized like the, the coming two in emphasis. Um, in the first place, we see the crowd. In the second place, we'll see the disciples. And in the third place, we'll see Christ himself. And from verse 1 to 4, what we'll see is that the crowd emphasized themselves. In the opening of our passage, we see Jesus coming across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was here where Jesus saw a large crowd approaching. If we skip forward a little bit to verse 10, we see that the crowd was about 5,000 men, which commentators kind of argue a little bit, and they say that it was anything from 7,000 to 20,000 people, including women and children. And John tells us why they were there. In verse 2, we see that they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. These people were desperate. They were helpless. They were tired, and they were weary. And perhaps for you, coming out of the last few years, and maybe even for us as a church the last two weeks, maybe even for yourself coming out of the last two hours, I'm sure many of us are feeling tired, desperate, weary, and helpless. These emotions can drive us to various responses we can sometimes think that our, uh, our circumstances are impossible to navigate. We see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, about one of his missionary journeys. He says that they were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Sometimes we can even feel like we're abandoned by God. Listen to what David says in Psalm 22, verse 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Maybe even our problems or our concerns cause us all sorts of anxiety, sadness, and even depression. We see the psalmist write in Psalm 77 verse 1, I think of God, which normally in biblical counseling we would say to focus on the Lord as it brings goodness, but here I groan, I meditate on God's word, and my spirit becomes weak 
The point here is that our problems feel very real to us. They consume us. And the problems of these people consume them too. They came to Jesus because they knew that he could do wonders and signs and miracles, that he could teach and make sense of their lives. How we respond to suffering shows what comes to mind when we think about God. And from our own experience, there's three responses, normal responses to suffering in this world. Firstly, we can run away from God while blaming God or blaming God for our problems. And while this is a temporary fix, it might even give us just a few moments to feel better. At the end of the day, this doesn't change our circumstances and doesn't alleviate much pressure. We can also, on the other hand, run to God, but as a problem-solving genie. Sadly, when this happens, we eventually realize that God has promised that his people will suffer. They will go through terrible persecution. They will face incredible difficulty because it serves the purpose and the reason to make us more like Christ. And so eventually those people too leave disappointed. Or we can run to God for God because he loves us. God's word tells us how our problems, suffering and evil come to be. He explains our lives to us. He promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And even though we struggle, we will find our rest in him. And in this crowd, we see a mass of people experiencing all three of these. We see people coming to Jesus for his teachings. Some came for miracles. Some came to see what was going on. And no doubt, some came to simply find someone to blame. But isn't it interesting that everyone came to Christ? And so while this crowd was focusing and emphasizing themselves, we see in verses 5 to 9, the disciples really emphasizing the problem in verses 5 all the way to verse 9, then again later. So what was the problem? Well, after a long day of teaching and healing, uh, Jesus looks out at the people and he sees that their one need, perhaps it was a missing limb, perhaps it was a dead sibling, perhaps it was simply that they felt ill, was met by Christ, but it was simply replaced by another. Some were healed and some were taught. Many were helped, but now thousands of hungry people. And just as an aside, isn't this a great picture of our own lives? Doesn't it often feel like as you've got one thing down, a new need pops up, and then another, and then another? Maybe by God's grace, uh, those thoughts telling you you're unloved go away, and then you hear a so-called friend gossiping about you. Maybe the doctor has finally gotten on top of a certain health challenge when suddenly another test is needed. And maybe you finally manage to focus on your identity being in Christ and then a new area of doubt creeps in. While our physical needs often feel the most real to us, isn't this also true of our spiritual needs? You've been battling that one sin for ages when finally some self-control and peace, you feel like you can move on, when all of a sudden you realize, well, you've been so inwardly focused, you've forgotten to serve the Lord. You've set aside ministry, you've set aside discipleship, and even other pet sins, which you've since begun to accept, have now begun to fester in your heart. During these times, it can really feel like we're on the treadmill of our spiritual lives, just barely moving forward. And the disciples are no different from you and I. Jesus asks a simple question. Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? A simple question which proves to bring about a massive issue. Even here, we see an incredible moment from Christ. While being simply used as a genie, a miracle-working man, 
Jesus looks out and sees the needs of these people. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus looked at them and he felt compassion. And so let's look at how the disciples responded. First, we, we see Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and he runs around. He gathers as much information as he can, clearly interviewing all the followers of Jesus that were present, and he reports back to Jesus in a hurry. 200 denarii. Eight months' worth of salary. That's what we've got. Now, let's say this as well. Eight months' salary is no joke. I'm sure all of us would appreciate eight months, worth, uh, eight months more pay this year. But I'm sure at the same time that we would recognize that eight months of our salaries isn't really going to cover much for 20,000 hungry people. What we're meant to see here in the picture which is being painted for us is that even this large sum of money and the greatest effort from all the disciples and followers of Jesus with all the sincerity of their heart can't solve not a big problem but a simple problem. And isn't Philip such a great example of Christians who have perhaps forgotten Christ? Philip is standing in front of Jesus, who quite literally recently had turned water into wine and had healed a cripple of 38 years. And all he can think to do is to drop his head in shame because he can't figure out how to help Jesus. So what help was available? Well, we can't help because we just don't have enough. Can I just ask, can you resonate a little bit with Philip? Do you look at your problems, whether physical or spiritual, and then as though with spiritual amnesia, look into God's word and read his promises of his presence and his love and his compassion and his care for us, and yet in your heart you ashamedly say, Lord, I wish I could help you fix my problems, but I guess we're stuck with them. Well, if this is you, you're not alone. Not only Philip, but Andrew, Peter's brother, probably also during the commotion of Philip running around trying to interview people for money, runs around himself trying to find someone with a solution. And who does he find? Not maybe a rich young ruler, not maybe another person in the crowd who can provide, not maybe a a wealthy investor, but a little boy, a very poor little boy. All he had was a few loaves of barley bread and a little bit of fish, which was less than a meal and more of a condiment, the type of meal that a servant boy would have had at the time. And in his excitement, Philip takes... Sorry, Andrew takes this little boy and he runs over to Jesus with him in hand and then he stops and looks down at this little boy's hands and he sees the absolute disparity of the situation. 20,000 hungry tummies in front of him and what on earth am I doing? We read in verse 9, he has a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Great excitement, much joy. But what are they for so many? Absolute despair. So maybe you're not like Philip, who's a type of person who says that they follow God. You run to God, but then you really forget God. But maybe you're more like Andrew, who represents many Christians who blow hot and cold with their trust in God. One moment, it feels like you're on top of the world spiritually. Your quiet times feel incredible. It feels like the Lord is speaking to you. It feels like your spiritual life, you are in it, you are growing, you are close to the Lord. And then the next, you look down at the realities of life, perhaps suffering or persecution, maybe even just a small bump in the road. And is God really there? Will he really help me? What if he doesn't? Will will I always feel this way? Isn't it true that we begin to feel this way too? Now, can you imagine this scene? 20,000 rowdy, agitated, hungry people all walking about trying to find their miracle and just get a glimpse of Jesus. 
And at the same time, 12 disciples emptying out their rucksacks, counting money, even interviewing people, going as far in desperation as to find a little servant boy to the simple question of where will we find food for these people? Now at our next church, Brian, a few weeks' time, if we had 20,000 hungry people rock up who also hadn't eaten all day, I think we too might head into a little bit of a tailspin. But not Jesus. I want us to notice something here. If we scan back to verse 6, we see that Jesus was testing them. Why? Because he knew what he was going to do. Now, it would be wrong of us to not stop and consider these incredible words. Jesus knew what he was going to do. John is unashamed in saying something that is completely counterculture to the world we live in today. Jesus knows of the trials, the difficulties, the moments of incredible grief and sadness. Even for us as a church in the last two weeks, over the last many years, perhaps even for you today, God is very much aware of your situation, yet Jesus is not panicking. He's not confused. He's not searching for answers. Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. Church family, not only does Jesus know the exact details of your life, but he knows what he is going to do. He knows what he's going to do tonight, tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, and every single moment in between. All of this is why we as Christians can take heart. We can be encouraged because while the crowd was focusing on themselves and emphasizing their problems, and while the disciples emphasized all the issues at hand and really did nothing constructive, Christ was emphasizing and focusing on himself. We see this in verses 10 to 15. And even here in this passage, we have every type of person represented. We see the unbeliever coming to whatever they would call God for all the wrong reasons. Healing, happiness, money, philosophy, to get rid of guilt, religion. Really at the core of it, these people want food. They want their needs to be met. We see those who claim to follow Christ, but have forgotten Christ and become self-reliant. We also see people who trust and then doubt, hot and then cold. People searching for a kind of freedom from their circumstances, from their problems and from their difficulties and from themselves. And then we see Jesus. We read from verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Right here in these words, in these very words, we get a glimpse into the heart of Christ in an incredible way. Jesus looks out at the physical needs of these people and he sees the spiritual need of their heart. And so he takes food and he gives thanks. And out of himself, he gives bucket and basket and basket and basket of food for the thousands of people. So much food, in fact, that the disciples completely overestimate the need and Jesus simply carries on providing. And commentators point out three helpful uh, points uh, in details in these verses. Firstly, Jesus alone provided for their need. Jesus tells the crowd to sit down on the soft grass. Their needs will be met 
not by their running about, not by their own effort, not by the disciples squabbling about money or trying to interrogate little children, but like their physical needs, their spiritual needs will be met in Christ alone. Secondly, that Jesus was and is the solution to their great need. Jesus doesn't begin his moment of dealing with their need with a sermon on helpful food harvesting techniques or perhaps on how to catch fresh fish. No, instead, he doesn't give a pep talk or a word of encouragement. Jesus gives bread which only he can give. And thirdly, we see that Jesus provided in abundance. Verse 11 ends with the most beautiful words, and the people had as much as they wanted. We see here that Jesus is able to meet people's needs in abundance. We also see in verse 12 to 13 that Jesus says, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And in that, they collect 12 baskets worth of food. Commentators point out that, again, this is a, a picture of that Jesus had enough and was enough and provided in abundance for enough, not just for the 12 tribes of Israel represented in the 12 uh, baskets of food, but for the 12 tribes in the leftovers. In other words, the bread which Jesus offers is enough. The, so the, the spiritual bread which Jesus offers is enough, not only for the 12 tribes of Israel, but for every single person. So what came to mind for these people as they thought about God and saw these miracles? Well, at the end of our passage, we see a sudden change in tone. Jesus retreats to the mountain as he sees the crowd change from listening and watching to wanting to take him to force him to be their king. We see Jesus see within them the heart that they want Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire because surely he is the prophet which was spoken about in the past. And sadly, this is the exact same type of response which comes from the twisting of Jesus' miracles today. Jesus says later in the same chapter, in verse 26, You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The wording here in, in the English doesn't come across well. It's actually, you saw me, sorry, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but in seeing the signs, you misunderstood them. So Jesus continues, don't look for the food which perishes, but look for the food which lasts to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal upon him. In a practical example then, these miracles are meant to be like a road traveling towards a T-junction, leading us to Christ, leading these people to Christ. We're at the point of Jesus, they are caused to make a decision, Christ or myself. Instead, this kind of human twisting of Jesus' miracles, a kind of seeing what we want in God, leads to a kind of roundabout mentality, where we head full speed towards Jesus at the center, and when we get there, we become so infatuated that we end up staring with sparkling eyes and twisted desires at the gifts instead of the giver while traveling around and around and around. So while Jesus stood there and offered them heavenly bread from a heavenly kingdom, what these people were certain of is that they were going to drag Jesus kicking and screaming into the earthly kingdom to keep their stomachs full of earthly bread. They wanted food and freedom. Isn't this so similar to when Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world if he would only 
exchange His glory and His worship. Sadly, sadly, this is exactly the way that the miracles of Jesus are treated today. These people were so ready for the Christ they wanted that they were willing to completely miss the Christ that God had sent. All these physical events that Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his healing, providing of bread were meant to paint spiritual pictures if these people would have only looked closely enough. Firstly, the bread which Jesus gave is representative of eternal life in Christ. When Jesus looked at these people, he had compassion on them. But this wasn't a kind of compassion out of sympathy. Rather, as Mark records, Jesus had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, God and his love for you goes far beyond simply having a better and more fulfilling life. It goes far beyond us having comfort in this life, far beyond us perhaps suffering with one less trial. Rather, God wants us to be able to see Christ as the bread of life and know that he is offering us life in himself. For many of us, like these people, if God meets our physical need, if Jesus is willing to bow the knee to us, then he is king. If we get that relationship, maybe that raise, if our kids turn out well, if we get to enjoy our hobbies and maybe hours of unending entertainment, then Jesus can have his throne in my heart. Then we're happy to say that we believe. But Jesus calls us to change our minds. He calls us to repent of this earthly way of thinking. He calls us to see that our greatest need is not the bread in our stomach or freedom from our problems, but rather salvation for our souls, hope for our weary hearts, and daily confidence in God. This evening, if you are a Christian and you have this eternal bread, then be encouraged. Christ knows you. Christ knows your sufferings. He loves you. He is present with you. And he is sufficient for your every need. On the other hand, if you have not yet eaten of this bread of life, you need to know that this heavenly bread is found in Christ alone. Jesus goes on in John 6 verse 35 to call himself the bread of life. And how do we get this heavenly bread? Well, Jesus says in verse 36 that no one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. And no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. Now, let's think back to the first sermon in the series. We saw why John wrote these miracles down. It's because he believed that their purpose was to bring about true faith in Jesus. These signs are to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Well, what we see in this passage is many different people coming to Jesus. Some coming for miracles and teaching. Others hung around Jesus but never looked to him. Others blew hot and cold. But Jesus was enough to meet each of them in their needs. He fed every single one of them until they wanted no more. And some went away happy with their miracle and with their healing, yet they never believed. And there are many people who will fill the pews in many churches, even our own church, with the same attitude towards Christ. 
So perhaps it's appropriate for us then to adjust A.W. Tozer's quote, which I used in the beginning, to this. What comes to mind when you think about the miracles of Jesus may not be the most important thing, but it may in fact change your life. So then for us as a church and for us as uh, those who are here tonight, what do you want? Do you want food, freedom, or Christ? Jesus is sufficient to meet your every need, but like with these people, he uses physical needs in order to paint the picture of our great spiritual need, not for earthly food, but for the bread of life which only he offers. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for who you are, Lord. We are thankful as you have revealed your character through the person and work of Christ. We are thankful, Lord, for what you teach us about yourself, that we might look to you and see, Lord, that you have revealed yourself. You are not a God who escapes us. You're not a God who cannot be known. You're a God who delights to be known. You're a God who made us in your image so that we might see that, Lord, you are knowable. Oh, Lord, would you protect our hearts from wanting a Jesus other than the one you have provided, from wanting a Christ who isn't the Christ who you provided. And like these people, from seeing the miracles and twisting them for our own desires and losing out on the true Christ, Lord, work in our hearts even this evening. Work in our hearts as those who would say that we love you, that we wouldn't be like Philip, who lived his life and yet didn't trust you, didn't seem to lean into you in these times, that we wouldn't be like Andrew in these moments, flustered and looking for answers, but then blowing hot and cold. Lord, but that rather we would be, as we see in later parts of your word, fervent disciples of Christ, as these men became, as they saw Jesus for who he was. Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. May we know that we can be fully satisfied in you. Help us this evening, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.